this Thursday, October 21st, you remember Rosamond McKittrick from Newnham College, Cambridge, who will be speaking on various evidences for 9th century French libraries. Then you get a break, and high time, too, after the schedule we've had for the past month. Uh, there is one change that I think I've announced once before for those of you who are friends of the Book Arts Press and have their advanced schedules. Marcus McCorson is announced for Thursday, November 11. He will, in fact, be speaking here on independent research libraries, the American Antiquarian Society, and the future of independent research libraries on Wednesday, November 10, the day before it's announced. Our speaker this evening is Father William Monahan from the University of San Francisco, and it's always a pleasure to have someone as a speaker who needs no introduction. Father Monahan. It's a great uh, pleasure to be here and to see uh, my friend Terry at home in his own laboratory, and I'm much admiration of what he's doing. And uh, uh, he has been to our university library and has uh, seen our collections, and so I feel that it's a continuation of conversation to be here. Uh, let me be, uh, begin by saying a few words about the University of San Francisco. This is the Jesuit fathers founded this institution in 1855 from Turin, Italy. It was founded nine years after the city began as an American city. It is, uh, was in the beginning a typical, typical liberal arts hyphen science collection of the 19th century among Jesuit institutions, I think, did not differ too much from other institutions of its time. Today, the University of San Francisco is one of the 28 Jesuit colleges and universities in the United States and Canada. Ours is one of the medium or smaller sized institutions, and you know undoubtedly of Georgetown University and here in New York City, Fordham. The college was called St. Ignatius College up until 1930. The earthquake and fire destroyed the college and church and everything in 1906. And so the present library in collecting for it began after 1906. Now, I have the uh, feeling that I would maybe satisfy you more is uh, when I uh, complete the, the lecture to ask you to think of topics to ask me because I'm sure that there are things which I can tell you I'll not think of saying but I'm trying to say things which will be of practical benefit to you for your information and for your own uh, careers from my experience. I came to the University of San Francisco in 1947 as head librarian. And as Jesuits do it, it's very much like the Army. You're appointed to the head job and told to go to library school after you were head librarian. <laughs> so that's not the first time that's happened. But anyhow, 
I went to library school, University of California, and uh, part-time, uh, and got my bachelor's degree in those days, bachelor's, in 1952. And uh, I was given a leave of absence of 18 months to plan a new building. Now imagine a library school student being given a leave of absence to plan a new, a new building. But uh, I, I was not a youngster at the time, but I was a youngster as far as library experience goes. But it was a marvelous education. The dean, Dean Danton, some of you have heard of Perry Danton, was loath to allow the leave of absence. But I enjoyed it. It was a marvelous experience. So, uh, to begin with, I have felt from the very beginning of my work for the library, I felt the need of outside income. Ordinary household income was never enough for me. <clears throat> Practically all of the rare book collection and special collections, I can say all of it, is paid by outside income. There's no budgeted amount except the salary of the rare book librarian and the supplies he, use, he uses. So it's all outside income. I uh, uh, will tell you about the Frank G. Drum Foundation. This was a foundation begun by a friend of the university in 1946 with $200,000. This was a fund that he had in an outside bank and the income was distributed by trustees. Our university library was never mentioned in the article of incorporation. Today, that same fund is 1,400,000. And uh, two years ago, after the trustees got tired of administration, it was transferred over total to us. And it's kept, hopefully, in the same bank, in Wells Fargo Bank, in San Francisco, and and getting, I think, uh, as good of income as it got under, under the directors. But you may know in the tax laws, 4% of net income is taxed when it's a private foundation. No longer, so we get more money. Uh, there are a number of endowment funds. There are at least three other endowment funds. Oh, uh, probably the largest separate fund totals $400,000. And then there are other smaller endowment funds. There's that. Often book funds are established in people's names. So a lot of the purchases which I make um, on a trip like this will be from gift funds. From That is to say, the money is expended, it's not endowed. Um, so the outside income was absolutely essential for obtaining collections of private libraries and also of, of adding to those collect collections. Now, I have needed two platforms to communicate with friends of the library. I'm, I'm speaking in the formal sense of friends, not in general. I needed First and foremost, a library associates. I didn't think so, but friends, close friends, connected with me and my work as librarian, urged me to establish a library associates. So we pondered it for at least two or three years. And we knew of the friends of the Bancroft Library at Berkeley, 
University of California. And uh, the then director told us the woes of having friends groups. So even burying the possible negative experiences, we forged ahead and founded it exactly 25 years ago. Um, we founded it on October the 6th, so earlier this month, just before I left on this trip, we celebrated 25 years. Now, the, libraries, the library itself is called the Gleason Library, and consequent library associates called Gleason Library Associates, after a father Gleason, a much-loved Jesuit father, uh, uh, in whose honor the money was collected from about uh, the end of the 1930s. Today, our library associates has four, 500 members. And um, we um, have the um, typical programs of lectures and, and so on. Um, we uh, gathered, we, we enlisted members of our, our associates from the, first of all, the Friends of the University, and finally, through the book world. And many of the Roxburgh Club members, that's the, Rock, that's the Book Collectors Club of San Francisco, joined and so on. So um, we named from our own membership those who had given outstanding service, either to our library or to others, fellows. So we began that about 1968. And a citation names what they have accomplished. And this has has meant a lot to a number of people who are named fellows. There's one man I met, meet every time I come to New York whose father was named a fellow, and he was very proud. But in a way, it's an encouragement to people in the book world. The, uh, the, the book world, perhaps by contrast with the art world, doesn't get the trumpets but there are some many worthy people doing marvelous things that need to have special citations. The Medal for Book Collecting, Sir Thomas More Medal for Book Collecting, was another uh, venture we went into after I had been on the 1967 Grolier trip to Europe. And the fellow Grolier members witnessed in the Royal Library of Stockholm the awarding of an annual medal for book collecting. And we heard there mention the words that were always mentioned in our citations, private book collecting, a public benefit. So we've done this every year since 1968. Norman Strauss, Waller Barrett, Wilmarth Lewis, Mary Hyde, Robert Taylor, Lessing Rosenwald, Gordon Ray, John Mayles, Maysfield, Phyllis Goodhart Gordon, uh, Otto Schaefer, John Dreyfus, Elmer Belt, Frederick Koff. And we, in making these citations, these medals, for each succeeding time here, we have tried to indicate that these people represent our aspirations. We award them as they are duly deserve it, but we have the highest aspirations 
for our future. The programs of the, of the associates are the typical of others, an autumn and winter lecture and the annual meeting, and one, <coughs> one library tour, literary tour a year. We used to have two. Fine topography, topography, Terry, has been our hallmark. Uh, we have tried to educate in taste our group in the finest printing we could do. And Lawton Kennedy, you may know the name, was a distinguished printer in our area, and he became my close personal friends for years and I was in New York City two years ago when I heard of his death and um, but he I often said from the rostrum makes us look good you need typography to tell the story now consequently our institution our library associates have not done what other institutions have done made great donations to the rare book program. We've made a modest 2,000 a year, but maybe that's for the future. We could contribute 25 and 50,000 sometime in the future, but right now we are still on the educating level and we are content to be where we are at the present time. I must emphasize that we made no com campaign to raise funds from the associates. I consider it simply cultivation of friends, letting them know our needs, letting them know where we are at any given time. Now next, the annual symposium is something I've done now for 16 years. In 1964, the University of Preston asked me to move to a full-time job in development. Apparently he saw that the skills which I had as librarian were more on the level of public relations and making friends. So uh, I was asked to continue raising money, especially for the library. Well, I'm not a campaign fundraiser, I knew right away. I can't ring doorbells and ask for a gift every year, but I can make friends. So I, through instinct or divine providence, I felt the urge to establish a new platform, another platform in addition to the Library Associates. It seemed to me that a library can and should get public support from those patrons in the community who support the arts, the museum, the symphony, the ballet, and the opera. And the symposium which I instituted was a direct attempt to get to that audience of patrons. I chose the first Thursday, Friday, and Saturday of August each year. A vacation time, many people told me, the worst time is the best time. I'd prefer to compete with people's vacation calendar than their social calendar in September, October, November, and so on. So, and pretty soon, people put us down in the calendar and came every year. The, the grove, the uh, Bohemian Grove, ends at the end of, of July. So a lot of the men who would ordinarily go to there were completely free to come. 
Now, uh, the place where I hold it is the moot courtroom of the law school. About 135 people uh, participate. And as lecturer, scholars, I get the very best I could get in this country or in Europe. One lecture each day uh, to which two scholars, eminent scholars, respond in a conversational way. At the law school moot courtroom, it lasts from 9.30 to 2 p.m. on Thursday and, and Friday and Saturday. A catered lunch by a very fine caterer. And uh, those of you who live in universities know how hard it is to get special catering. <laughs> There's a contract the university makes with a caterer inside the university. But somehow we got by with it year after year. So a special catering reflects the themes of our, of our series. It would be a Greek food for a Greek theme and Russian food for Russian, not extremely so, but to moderate degree, we reflected, we reflected the themes in the food we ate. Two evening dinners, often with entertainment at the dinners, especially the first evening, Thursday evening, and uh, singing or dancing. Uh, so, uh, and dancing in relationship to the theme. Friday evening was the black t is the black tie dinner at the Pacific Union Club, once a private mansion mansion on Knob Hill, uh, built in the late uh, 1800s, uh, 1800s. About 775 people come to that. That is include spouses and special escorts. We discourage people from bringing friends to those evening gatherings because conversation is my object. Whatever happened during the day, during the discussions, I hope will continue on through lunch and through cocktails at night and through dinner. I don't compel the people, I try to persuade the people to continue the, the conversation. Now, my topics in 1965, five, freedom and authority, Thomas More, Erasmus, and Martin Luther. This was during the riots, the first beginning of the riots of campuses of the United States. And I noticed the newspaper, Freedom and Authority, constantly reported in, in the press. So I had acquired a major collection in 1951 of Thomas More, and I thought that was a time of revolution. Why not bring that in, Freedom and Authority? So I went to Stanford and the, asked the head of the, of the Department of, of Music, what do you do with the music for me? He says, I haven't got the time, but the subject is so good I can't turn it down. So with his instruments designed after Renaissance instruments, he played music for me for the Court of Henry VIII for three evenings. In those years, we had three dinners. So it was superb. And the final evening at the California Palace of the, the, the Legion of Honor, we had a full orchestra of Renaissance instruments in the Crystal Room. We had a, a couple made a dance the whole length of the room in, in, in costume. The musicians were in the costumes of Man for All Seasons. It was a gala affair and wild boar was served. 1966, Liberty and Laughter, Cervantes, Rabelais, and Johnson, Ben Johnson. 1967, when our cities were being burnt in America, 
Lessons from Revolution, Marx, Darwin, Freud. 1968, Dante, The Mind in Love. And on that occasion, we used the opera, foyer of the Opera House in San Francisco for the first time for a major dinner. We had to use their caterers so we, we couldn't put on the class we wanted to. 1971, about the end of the Vietnam War, change and chaos. We went back to, to Bruno, to, to Bruno, Dunn, and Descartes. To skip a few years, 1981, Russia interest, interested me for a long time. So Solzhenitsyn's words of the Nobel Prize acceptance was part of it, excerpt was, shout out to the whole world. But he and his fellow prisoners, the Stalinist prisons, wanted to shout out to the whole world what they had learned. So my three subjects were Dostoevsky, Mussorgsky, and Solzhenitsyn. That was a very, I won't say violent symposium, but there was a lot of activity. There was, uh, uh, people were vying, I'm speaking of the scholars, were vying with time to speak. So I followed up with a much quieter symposium this year, which is for, for Follow the Heart, Chinese Landscape Painting, Ming and Qing Dynasty, and gardens depicted in those paintings, and the novel, A Dream of, of the Red Chamber. I have here to be an illustration for you, to pass it around, how typography is so, in, so important to me illustrating what I've done. This is the announcement for the uh, symposium on China, Follow the Heart. I'll pass it on. I, I have been schooled to use illustrations in uh, typography, especially through Lawton Kennedy. So I feel very, very enthusiastically on using illustrations or designs or vignettes or floral things in uh, engraving as a design to announce an event. My purpose in these 16 symposiums was to illustrate the excitement for learning that anyone might find in a library. My constant theme, humanistic theme, how can you and I get more out of life? What are you doing for yourself? So, without any fundraising, but nevertheless presenting these matters, I, at the beginning of every symposium each year, I say this is being presented to make the Gleason Library more known and we hope that you'll be interested in watching our progress. And then as the preliminary festivities, the university librarian reports and acquisitions for the past year. Now, gifts have come in to the university and one very large gift and to, to the library over the 16 years. During the symposium, we encourage tourists to, to the rare book room. And uh, I've already mentioned to you about the illustration. Now, 
That is sort of the first part of my talk or speaking about two platforms, the library associates and the symposium, appealing to two different audiences, almost completely. There's some passover between one and the other. But almost over these years, they have stayed in two different groups. And uh, many people have attended all, not many, but quite a few have attended all symposiums. But I have used a publicity man each year so that in the community, I'm drawing from other states across the country too, people have heard about again and again and again through television, through newspaper articles and so on. Um, they've heard about the uh, symposium. So a lot of people, once a subject comes up that interests them, then, then they come. We've had people come on to ch the China Symposium, largely because a lot of people have been making the tour to China. Now, my second part of my talk is about friendships with private book collectors and antiquarian booksellers. As a preliminary, you'll understand me by saying that for a successful library in my image, there must be constant and intimate association and friendship between the private book collector, the antiquarian bookseller, and the librarian. One, uh, at least the uh, librarian, I speak for myself, we tend to lose our sights. We tend to lose our judgment unless we're constantly, as we're looking over the shoulder of a book collector or looking over the shoulder and looking at the shelves of a bookseller. But this will give you an example in our institution, in our library, uh, the path we have trod in book collecting private collections. 1951, I was still in library school. The opportunity came up to purchase a Sir Thomas More uh, collection formed by an attorney in San Francisco, Dean, uh, Dean Harrison, Maurice Harrison, Hastings Law School. We did not have the money at that time. I was still a beginning librarian, but I needed the money. It was $8,000. It doesn't sound like a lot of money now, but it's an awful lot of money then. I went to my, my mother and asked if I could could have $8,000 on loan. I pay it back year by year. Well, my mother and father went into a conference and said, we won't lend it to you, we'll give it to you. So that was the foundation stone of our rare book collections. But as I pursue booksellers and, and I pursue uh, the, the book collectors, I'm not only interested in rare books and manuscripts, drawings and so on, I'm very much interested in the average book that fills in our collection. In the Thomas More collection, there are some outstanding pieces. The 1557 English works, autograph inscription showing the ownership of Roper, William Roper, the grandson of Thomas More, a manuscript of Craska More's Life of More, 17th century hand, one of three copies, the British War Museum. Yale has a uh, part uh, imperfect copy, and and ours is, is the third. Uh, this was a, ours was obtained at the John Burns sale, in 1941, by the by the collector. 
we have a utopia owned and annotated by 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 John John Dunn. There's several annotations which show uh, a lot uh, a new interest, a new aspect of John Dunn's life. Now we ourselves have added on to the collection in 1963. Sotheby's had at London offered the John Murray copy of First Utopia, 1616, and happily. When I got the telephone call, the right man was in the office at the time. He said, close the door. <laughs> he said, I'll back you up to $6,000. I got it for $2,500. So we have pursued, we have uh, tried to, to demonstrate the private collections which we receive, either by gift or by purchase, we try to, to develop. 1954, Christopher Columbus, a collection formed by a local uh, collector, a professor. We got uh, that in total as a gift. 1961, Robert Graves collector donated by a private book collector. I wrote to Graves after we printed a checklist and um, Robert Graves said, this is the second best after the New York University at B B Buffalo that the Buffalo has the best and yours is the, is the next. He said, I'm sorry to say I don't know any collection in my own country. So I made my object in 1964 to visit Robert Graves and um, a New York bookseller happened to be there as his guest <laughs> buying manuscripts, which I couldn't afford. But we have added an enormous way over the years to our Robert Graves collection we have lots of autograph letters and manuscripts. 1964, the R.T. Clark private collection in, in Blackwells, I bought it in Blackwells in Oxford. 4,000 volumes, 1,000 pamphlets. The pamphlets were exceedingly important. My, I don't have an intelligence, I have a nose. Uh, but I saw those, those pamphlets, and, and these were uh, 1914 uh, to 19. 22 of Eastern Europe, uh, mainly in, in German and other European languages. I just knew they were important. Well, to tell you my fortunes as a book hunter and a fundraiser, that purchase of those pamphlets in the R.T. Clark collection in 64 merited for me much later a scholar with similar collection promising to give me testamentary trust of $500,000. Now that's because he saw the seriousness of purpose. He saw that we had something worthwhile there and he wanted to add on to it. I, won't, I, I will tell you that he planned to give the money to scholarships the university <laughs> and so he changed his mind and gave them to the rare book book. <laughs> 1969, the Grabhorn Press, a near complete a collection from a private book collector, a request, close friend of mine. 1970, which is an event of a person collected, the first rare book librarian, Florian Shasky and Steve Corey, many of you know, the point in 1974. 1971, our Eric Gill collection, a private book collector had acquired this over a period of 40, 30 years. And today, it's one of the three outstanding in America, UCLA, 
Texas and ours. And we are adding to it and adding to it and adding to it. In 1972, another major event, the dedication of our rare book room, the Donahue Rare Book Room. Terry, you are a visitor there. That was made possible with a foundation grant. And it was requested, foundation grant was requested by one of our library associates. A complete surprise to me because it was, I guess I had communicated to her that I really wanted it badly, but she said, I think I have the money. How much do you need? <laughs> now, Norman Strauss <clears throat> is um, perhaps our closest book collector friend of my own and of the libraries. He received the first Thomas More Medal for book collecting. And he has given us many collections. Among them, Richard Gallian collection, which contains not only the books, association copies, but also autographed letters and manuscripts. And we have added to it, and even Steve Corey very recently got a full-length manuscript to add to it. Uh, Norman also, Strauss has given us the complete Book Club of California Publications, the Peregrine Press, Victor Hammer. We have a very uh, a collection in depth with Victor Hammer. Almost everything that Norman Strauss ever did was in depth. John Henry Nash. We have a major collection of John Henry Nash, and we've been adding to that since. And the Overbrook Press. Uh, Norman Strauss gave a lecture to the Roxburgh Club at our library on the Oprah Press and Frank Altshul, who was then alive because of Norman Strauss, gave at Norman's suggestion a fine Oprah Press collection to us. We recently acquired the most difficult of all Oprah Press pieces, the Stevenson, the Inland Voyage. We just got that. Um, the recitation of these names of collectors and collections serves to underscore that the Gleason Library is being formed by private collections. But as I, a collector said to me over this weekend, that's no surprise. Any major national institution or private institution is formed by private collections. None of us who work in institutional libraries can possibly have the intense concentration and form the relationships or friendships about one subject that a Wilmarth Lewis could form on Horace Walpole. And he gets everything connected with Walpole. So this becomes a major uh, source for future generations. So I and Metropolitan Museum uh, is constantly either acquiring by gift or by purchase major collections. The collectors are not too generally known as benefactors in the public interest. The work, albeit a, a pleasure of forming a collection, is truly an enterprise of learning. In a collector's lifetime, they, their collections are used and writers prepare articles and books as distributors of knowledge formed, gathered by the collector. 
so that the research done, being done in this institution and in most institutions in America or in the world are from highly consecrated, highly uh, collection in depth of important materials. But what the private collector does in addition to that, and here's the reason for getting to know them on a personal basis, they take offshoots of their collection you would never expect. Wilmarth Lewis <clears throat> told me many times that his graphic collection of prints and drawings would be the most important part of his library in this next century because you most have a pictorial representation of the 18th century in Wilmarth Lewis's uh, print collection. Well, from the very beginning, even without knowing that I was doing the right thing, I sought out collectors as my personal friends. <clears throat> I visited them in their homes and their libraries for 20 years. They have been my teachers in building our collections. They are men and women of fire, a lovely phrase of saint beuve You can see that I was a good listener <clears throat> when Walter Barrett spoke to the rare book section of the American Library Association in 1960 at the Folger Library in Washington. He urged us librarians to leave our offices and go out and meet the collector if we wanted to make strong libraries. He said, you need us and we need you. <coughs> and Walter Barron has told me many times, no one has followed his advice more than I have. <clears throat> the best antiquarian booksellers are equal in learning to the best private book collectors. Their catalogs are often, and I heard this last Saturday night from a collector, their, 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 their catalogs are the best introduction to, to a subject. The collectors taught me to collect important auction and data uh, catalogs. Mr. Barlow, Bill Barlow, who spoke here for Book Arts Club, is a collector of Baskerville. He, by force, became a collector of catalogs because he wanted to know where Baskervilles, which he couldn't find, were to be found. So Bill Barlow has a card index file from this immense collection of catalogs identifying that this particular title of, of, of Baskerville was only found in one catalog in 1887 and never been seen since. Just to visit a bookseller's, uh, a good bookseller and look at their stock is an education in itself. And I myself have spent as much as two, three, and four days in a rather small stock of books of a, a bookseller because most of the books which we acquire, which I am instrumental in acquiring for our library I have never seen before so I look at the book very thoroughly look at the text table of contents association marks annotations of by contemporary hand and so on so I, I learn a great deal from booksellers but I also learn from conversation there's a man named Joe <laughs> who died really well prematurely in his 50s 
was one of my close friends. Rubenstein had a bookstore in his home in Tucson, Arizona, San Francisco, and Berkeley. I would go there even to his home or shop more to converse with him than to buy books, although I did both. But we have in San Francisco, any of you visit San Francisco, we have a, a lot of fine booksellers on Post Street. We'll up and down Post, and you'll see in a very short walk from Union Square some wonderful booksellers. Um, and a bookseller recently introduced me to the, to the AB Weekly. It uh, took me a little while to be converted to that, and finally I realized how valuable a thing it was. And I recently got a Jesuit manuscript, 1707, from an AB Weekly notice at the end of the volume. And it was a, I telephoned the bookseller in Connecticut right away, and uh, it was three courses given at Jesuit College in Luxembourg in, in, uh, before 1707, transcribed by a student. But anyhow, the AB Weekly, I, I assure you, has many treasures, but you have to learn to live with it. Um, now, uh, I guess I'm about finished, but I m must say a tribute to Chauncey, Chauncey Brewster Tinker. Uh, he died, in, I believe, in the 1950s. But he, more than anyone else in this century, is responsible for the Beinecke Library being what it is. I know I'm exaggerating, but not by too much. In the early 1900s, uh, around the time of the First World War, he enlisted men like Frank Alt, Scholl, Wilmarth Lewis, Harvey Cushing, and Paul Mellon. He got these, these young men uh, interested in collecting in one way or another. You couldn't know Tinker without being interested in collecting. There's that Bryn Mawr, there's a collection of three boxes of autographed letters, which I read every time I go there, of Chauncey Tinker to, a, to then a young student in 1906, young alumna of Bryn Mawr. Um, and I enjoyed those very, very much. I don't have the time to spend it pretty more than I would like to. They always tell me, spend two weeks here. I can't do it. But I, uh, that Tinker, even as a young teacher at, at Bryn Mawr, communicated that enthusiasm for books. But uh, Chauncey Tinker taught these young men that private book collections are a first form of scholarship and a great education and immense enjoyment for the individual. And from these collections, go into institutional libraries, uh, either through gift or through purchase, and the next stage, even before then, is that publications come from. So learning is advanced by the private book collector. Well, so I mentioned to you at the beginning, there are a number of topics which I would like to, to cover, but perhaps in a few minutes right now, you might ask me a couple of questions if you can think of anything I haven't covered or you'd like to ask me.